Shrink Wrap Radio number 821, Dan Siegel, M.D., on the integration of self, identity, and belonging. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. Dr. Daniel J. Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He's also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, which focuses on the development of Mindsight, teaches insight, empathy, and integration in individuals, families, and communities. He's the author of the 2022 book, Intraconnected, The Integration of Self, Identity, and belonging, which will be the focus of our conversation. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Dan Siegel, welcome back to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, and congratulations on your new book, uh, Intraconnected, The Integration of Self, Identity, and Belonging. You've got a copy there? Yes. There it is. Shows nice. up very nicely. And show us the thickness of it. It's thin. Not not too bad, considering no. <laughs> considering everything that it covers. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's very uh, very extensive. Well, I'm happy to welcome you back, and I believe this is your fourth appearance on the show. So you're one of the stars of Shrink Wrap Radio, <laughs> and the last time we spoke was about a year ago, and it really has stood in my mind. I was very impressed by the sense of urgency that you were feeling at the time, uh, that we're all on the brink of catastrophe. So in relation to that, does your new book suggest an action plan? Yeah, yeah, it does. It uh, it looks at some of the, if you want to call them catastrophic uh, pandemic experiences we're having, of course, the viral pandemic but also the pandemic of racism and social injustice, the pandemic of what we're seeing right now, misinformation and polarization, and the pandemic, you know, of other things, our digital addictions, our loneliness, and climate change even, the way we're having these experiences of chaos and rigidity within the environment that reveals a fundamental problem with how humanity relates to nature. So each of those pandemics, if you if we can call them that, that's affecting all people, that's what pandemic means, is, uh, I think, related to how the self is constructed. So the, the book Interconnected really says, well, what is the self? How does it connect to identity and belonging? And if the self is constructed as separate, and that is, in fact, the cause of these pandemics, the bad news is we're creating our own worst nightmare. But the good news is, since we've constructed it, we can do something to deconstruct the problem and, and put ourselves in a different direction. So, you know, the urgency I was feeling um, last year, I feel even more this year. And and this is a book that says, well, this may be the root of the problem. And this would be the pathway for change. Yeah. Well, your book is vast in its vision, and you take the reader through a lot of layers and complexity, but the argument comes together as a whole. And it's easy enough to understand, I think, for uh, anyone who reads the whole book, even though you do go through so many 
layers of, of complexity. Yeah. For, our, for our purposes here, though, I'd like to focus on the big ideas. And let's start with um, you talk about interconnected versus interconnected. So what's the, what does interconnected mean here? Yeah, well, you know, uh, the word is not a word in English. <laughs> it's okay, a, it's, no wonder. I'm glad I'm yeah. asking then. <laughs> it's not a word, but it was a word that came up in, in a conversation, uh, a discussion, really, I was having with several colleagues. We had spent three days by ourselves <clears throat> in the forest as part of a retreat. We, we were systems science people looking at how to understand systems. And so part of the retreat we had was to be a quote, alone in the forest. And when we came out of the three days where we were separated from each other, um, everyone was talking about being interconnected, interlaced, having interbeing, interwoven, interdependent. And then it came time for me to speak around the circle. And I'm a very uh, particular person about words. And I said, I really resonated what they were saying. But the, the prefix inter means something between and the experience that I had in the forest was that after a couple of hours, you know, there I was the trees, I was the creek, I was the sky, I was the body called Dan. And there was a wholeness within that connection that using the prefix inter just didn't capture. And then I paused and I said, so it's more like intraconnected. And everyone kind of nodded their heads. And when we came out of the forest and I came back to just type up some reflections on what that experience had been like. I kept on writing intraconnected for what it felt like. And the word processor automatically changed it to the word it had in its dictionary, interconnected. Yeah, right. And then I said, what's wrong with my word processor? And I realized as I looked it up in dictionaries, oh. there is no word intraconnected. And there's really not a word in English anyway for how do you speak from the perspective of the whole? And that's what started out this journey to take this other term that I had kind of made up when I taught a course called Me to We, and one of my students got really mad. And she <laughs> said, you know, you're teaching integration and you're a hypocrite. I said, well, how am I a hypocrite? She goes, your talk is called Me to the We, which implies getting rid of me to get to we. I said, yeah, it does imply that. She goes, I, I said, but that's not what I really mean. She goes, what do you mean? I said, well, it's integrating it. And I tried saying, well, it's not only me, it's also we, but she said, that's too clunky. So I said, well, if you integrate something, you take the elements of it, like me and we, me is the inner experience of self, we is the relational experience of self. I said, so to integrate that, you'd say me plus we is, I guess, we, you know, M-W-E. <laughs> and she was all excited about that. And that's a term I'd been using for a while. So we would be what the interconnected identity would be. And what's been fascinating about it is when people are offered the word intraconnected and the related word we, there's a kind of liberation from a false division that says, I'm either me or we, you know, in those words we have, yeah. I'm either individualistic as me or collectivistic as we, but we re reveals the intraconnected nature where you can have an inner self and a relational self. And together they make up the interconnected self. So the book, as you know, you know, walks you through the layers of, you know, indigenous teachings that have taught this for thousands of years. So, for example, here I'm, you know, speaking from the unceded lands of the Chumash and the Tongva here in Southern California. And these have been teachings from many indigenous cultures. And I start the book um, quoting a number of leaders from all over the world in the indigenous traditions. And in also in thousands of years, independently, contemplative practices have come up with this same view. So in some ways, you might say, well, this isn't new, you know, thinking about the wholeness of everything and that the self shouldn't be limited. And I acknowledge that first off in the book. And I just say, yeah, but somehow modern culture keeps on teaching a kind of lie that the self is separate. And maybe science can add to the indigenous wisdom and the contemplative teachings from thousands of years, because we don't have much time to actually figure out what's wrong, do something about it, and then actually take action for that path. And so this is just an attempt to honor indigenous teachings and contemplative teachings, and then say, look, if you look at the science of development, you can understand across the lifespan, 
how the experience of S-E-L-F, self, which is your subjective experience, your perspective, your agency, that is your the center of action, how if it gets constructed within the family, within the school, within the culture as separate, then we, we are set up to have these pandemics happen. But if we can, if we can actually construct an intraconnected self, you know, not giving up the me of the individual, but acknowledging the equally important we of our relational self, then when you get them both together, that's what intraconnected means. Yeah, I'm really glad you spoke to this because that was certainly a question that came to, to my mind was, okay, so why are you writing this book if we, if the wisdom traditions and particularly Buddhism uh, have told us this for going way back? And um, but if I understand you, you're putting it in Western terms and uh, drawing up, up upon what we know about science and systems and so on to kind of interpret it for those of us who are not who are not born into those other systems because because those people have the benefit of having of it not being a construct to them. Rather, it's their lived experience. Exactly. Well, that yeah, that that's absolutely true. And I think what what uh, this aspect of science that I work in called interpersonal neurobiology offers is we bring all the sciences into one framework. Yeah. Um, called interpersonal neurobiology, and in that framework, we look at something called integration as the heart of well-being. Integration means uh, a system that has differentiated elements. And then as you link them, so it's a combination of differentiation linkage, as you link them, they don't lose their differentiated nature. So it's not like blending. So the, the indigenous teachings often don't mention this notion of integration. Contemplative teachings don't mention this process of integration. So in a way, it's saying, let's honor indigenous and contemplative wisdom, and let's add to the discussion, not just saying, oh, you know, we're, we, we agree with them, but let's add to the discussion a deepening of our understanding of what this self really is made of. So we look at the integration of the self across the lifespan. So we look at the brain, we look at attachment, we look at um, cultural influences, and then we look at this process that science studies called self-construal, which is how a culture... Um, shapes how the self is constructed. Construal basically means construction. And and so what was really exciting about it was to then, you know, start with indigenous and contemplative teachings, then say, what does science have to add to that discussion and that invitation mm -hmm. to go beyond what modern culture anyway is saying, the self is just in your body, but then to ask a simple question like, what is the self? And then a related question is, why does the self have to be a synonym? Why does the self have to be a synonym for the, the individual, right? Why do we do that? Because if the self is the center of your subjective feeling, your perspective and agency, which is pretty much what the various scientific explorations of self imply, that spells the word spa, then in modern culture, we basically put that self inside the skin encased body. And it's almost like a noun, like an entity that's here in this body. So the simple question is, what is that self? And then why would it have to be made synonymous with the individual within that body? And in modern culture, especially in the United States, we're the most individualistic country in the world. And yet we have the highest rates, some would say, of mental suffering. And I don't think those are a coincidence. I think that the the lie of the separate, what I call solo self, is actually the cause of mental suffering because the self is not just inside the body, but that's what we keep on being told. And then you try to live a life where, okay, I want this self to be happy or healthy or whatever. And you've been told a lie about what that self is. So, you know, this book builds on indigenous and contemplative teachings to add that integration means you are not just inside your body. And this builds on, you know, in interpersonal neurobiology, we say the mind is not just the activity of the brain in your head. It's a fully embodied and fully relational experience. So 
kind of builds on all that in the, in the next step of extending it into self-identity and belonging. Yeah, you mentioned that you were at this retreat uh, uh, thinking about systems theory and, yep. and how it bears on these things. And I was particularly interested in in what you're writing about that in the book. And um, so take us through what you describe the, as systems theories for ch- stages of change. Yeah, well, a, a couple of things about that. You know, one is often, especially in modern culture, we're taught in, in, in a more kind of linear way that reduces things to its parts, which has its own function and value. Like, you know, if you're facing a viral pandemic, you really want a scientist who knows how to reduce that virus into its parts, figure out what are the ways you can develop an, uh, you know, a vaccine and save millions and millions, billions of lives. So reductionistic, linear thinking can be really, really useful mm-hmm. when it's placed in context. At the same time, when you're looking at whole systems, like the system of the body. So I'm a physician, you know, I was really kind of disappointed with how instead of looking at the whole system of the body, you had people who studied the kidney and people who studied the heart and people who studied the musculoskeletal system. And, you know, it's like you didn't have anyone who's looking at the whole person, let alone their mind or their you know, their relationships within their, their, their world of meaning. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. But so, so for me, um, as a psychiatrist, um, I also noticed not just my field, but the field of mental health reduced the self to the individual and reduced the mind to the brain. And the implications for those fields are that you, when you don't think in systems terms, you actually lose the fundamental stuff of what you're actually looking at, like the human being or the human being within a culture, for example. So I started uh, to collaborate with um, people at MIT, Peter Senge, Otto Scharmer, uh, Meta Boll, who are system scientists, because I wanted to learn more. Um, and also they were interested in interpersonal neurobiology because we take a systems view. Um, and this was a retreat basically of members of this small group uh, that we're studying together. And and in terms of your issue about systems change, in the 1980s, uh, a, a number of mathematicians and physicists and other scientists got together to really look at systems, and especially systems that are called complex systems. And they do go through this period of kind of equilibration and then to get out of a period of stable function. Sometimes you have to go through a period of of disorganization and then reorganization and then to equilibrate again. So I think that may be what you're referring to, David, about the the change process. And what is exciting about that is sometimes you need to disrupt um, some factor within the system, like in interconnected, what I suggest is that factor is how we take a simple linguistic term, self, define it as the individual, and then talk about self-actualization or self-compassion or self-awareness or self-regulation. And all of those terms, while they are benign in their intention, they are toxic in their inadvertently reinforcing the idea that the self is just the individual. And if we start changing that to just, let's say, use the word inner. So you can talk about inner regulation inner awareness, inner compassion, inner understanding. And then, you know, even 20 years ago, I wrote a book called, you know, Parenting from the Inside Out. And we used the term how self-understanding is one of the best predictors of something or whatever is the best way you can help your children thrive. Well, I would change that now. I wouldn't use the term self-understanding unless I wanted to really make it its broadest notion that you have an inner self and a relational self. So I think that's the factor that can lead to systems change in a relatively rapid way. It's the fundamental base of cultural evolution that can happen pretty quickly. And it's that speed and scale that we absolutely need now uh, as we face, you know, all the social injustice and climate issues as just examples that are making life feel for many people on this planet like something is not working right 
and is about to um, implode or explode, you know. And so we're seeing this, sadly, all over the world. And so, you know, this is just an effort to contribute in some small way to what humanity needs to do, I think. The thing that it, uh, that really intrigued me in, uh, in what you had to say about uh, systems change is to you kind of reframe it in terms of the big picture, if you will, and suggest that this difficult time that we that we're going through is um, is a is a dynamic change process. It's a stage in a larger process, and uh, which offers hope. In other words, that we are in the process, uh, going through the difficult process of, as you say, disequilibrium. I don't know if I can say that word. Yeah, Dis- well, disorganization as a disequilibrium. Disequilibrating. Yeah. Disequilibrating. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we feel a little bit lost. But if we look at the bigger picture, we're moving to a new and, and, Hopefully, better organization, and, uh, and yeah. so so you use the term uh, that we're going through the uh, what was the term the the great change? Yeah, it's, it's Joanna Macy's term is the great turning. The great turning. Um, and Joanna's a beautiful uh, visionary, I think, and and person and leader in this field. I've been working in it for fifty years, so you know I've been close with her and, and consulting with her over the course of many years now and interconnected uh, really is uh, inspired by this notion that the great turning, which is a term from Joanna Macy, is basically a way that instead of designing a whole modern approach to culture that talks about the um, way we achieve success is by material acquisition and material production and consumption, the great turning rather is to see um, how do you actually find a way to have a regenerative approach to living on earth, to actually have the greater good be the goal. Yeah. Not, you know, and this greater good being, and, and uh, Dacher Keltner is someone I quote in the book, who, you know, started the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, but also in his studies of awe, uh, and we taught together for a while uh, about the what are usually called self-transcendent emotions of compassion, awe, and gratitude. So I said to Dacker, I said, you know, why don't we change that from self-transcendent to self-expanding? Because, and this is actually an issue with um, that I've had in, in having the opportunity to speak with a number of contemplative leaders that instead of saying there is no self, you know, where the person hearing it has a body that has an inner self, um, why not say that the self can be expanded beyond just the individual body um, and that these experiences of subjectivity are real, perspective are real, agency is real. And um, so it's a philosophical difference, but there is a whole view in the contemplative world of what's called no self. And I say, well, you know, once you say no self, there's a self that's saying no self. Right. So what do you do with that? And and I quote some beautiful, beautiful lines from Thich Nhat Hanh, who addresses this, that it's not about there not being a self. It's that the separate self, or what I might call the solo self, is what the illusion is, that there is there is something called subjective experience, which is very real. And it reminds me when I was in medical school and the professors acted like there was no such thing right. as subjective. Right? Yeah. Telling someone they would die and they wouldn't seem to care about how they felt about it or what it meant to them. And I would say, you know, why aren't you talking to them about what you just said to them? They said, well, I told them everything they need to know. Now there's nothing more for me to do. So for me, subjectivity as an essence of self and perspective as an essence of self and agency as a physician, was crucial when I dropped out of school and ultimately came back for me to say, I, I really want to promote the well-being of this whole human being, not just the physiological problems that are called medical diseases. So I, I guess I have a lot of emotional energy behind this because, you know, the denial that there's a self 
has its own uh, problems in in the field of medicine. Uh, and I think there's a way forward where you expand the self with awe, with gratitude, with compassion. And this is a very exciting moment because then the contemplative teachings, the indigenous teachings, which support deep relationality and interdependence, um, and this scientific view of integration give us a pathway, which I've worked so many years now to try to articulate in this book, um, where you can have a vocabulary of what an expanded self would be. And you don't have to say it's from me to we and, you know, losing the me, quite the opposite. You want to really, as um, you can see in various indigenous teachings, you want to really honor the gifts of the individual and uh, allow that to to blossom in a person's life. Yeah, yeah. Now, you also mentioned chaos theory, and yeah. I was intrigued by that. Does chaos theory somehow recapitulate what uh, 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 systems theory had to say, or is it, does it bring something different to the picture? Yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, systems thinking looks at the uh, multi-layered, interdependent, connections among elements of a system. And when that system, it has three features to it, when it's capable of being chaotic, so this is overlaps with chaos theory, when it's open to influences from outside of what you might call itself as a system, um, and when it's what's called nonlinear, when small inputs to the system lead to large and relatively um, difficult to predict uh, outcomes, that's called nonlinear. When it has those three things, nonlinear, open, and chaos capable, then we call it a complex system. So in the 1980s, people studied this, these systems. So it's related to chaos theory, but the other term that's used is dynamical systems or complex systems. So they're very overlapping mm -hmm. perspectives. And yes, so, so when you're looking at complex systems, which is what we do in systems uh, awareness that I, with those folks I was mentioning, we are absolutely drawing on the scientific discoveries uh, in the 1980s. So it's pretty recent uh, of something, for example, called emergence. And emergence yeah. is related to what Buckminster Fuller called um, synergy, you know, where there's something that arises from the interaction of the elements of the parts, like, for example, the experience of wetness, you know, wetness is not a property of a single H2O water molecule. But if you get a bunch of H2O water molecules together, you experience wetness. Now, wetness emerges from the interaction of the elements of the system. It's not magical. It's magnificent, but it's not magical. So there are some scientists, I was even some with some of them this, this last week, you know, that say emergence is ridiculous. And there's no reason to uh, evoke emergence as a process. But those are linear thinkers who don't realize that wetness is an emergent property of the fundamental elements of water molecules. It's not a property of a single water molecule itself. So that being said, one of the emergent properties of complex systems is called self-organization. And it's how the system regulates its own becoming. There's no conductor. There's no you know, master uh, director of the show. There's no writer. It's just a natural emergent property. Now, if you're a linear thinker, you would think that's nuts. How can you have a self-organizing process? But in fact, because it's based on probability theory, you can show that there's a light more, a higher likelihood of a complex system to achieve what's called maximal complexity, which has the qualities of harmony it's flexible, it's adaptive, it's coherent, it's energized and stable. And this complex system then self-organizes towards harmony. And when it's not doing that, it either goes to chaos or rigidity, which reminded me of all the patients I was seeing, that they were either chaotic or rigid. So when I read further in this math book, it said that the way you achieve optimal self-organization is basically by balancing differentiation on the one hand and linkage on the other. And so they didn't have a name for that. So I just named that integration. And that's where the notion 30 years ago comes from, that integration was the basis of well-being. 
by looking at the mind as this self-organizing emergent embodied in relational process. And then suddenly all sorts of things in the mental health field, in the education field, in the parenting field, in politics and climate issues, everything started becoming clear with this very simple model. Optimal self-organization is this faces flow, flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable, bounded by either chaos or rigidity when you blocked differentiation or linkage or both. And then, then all sorts of things became clear. For example, with climate change, we're seeing the chaos and rigidity on the planet because humanity has excessively differentiated itself from nature and hasn't linked in a balanced way with mm-hmm. nature. And this, you know, solo self process is kind of like, I, I hate to compare it to this, but from a medical point of view, in the body, when you get a cell that is not functioning as a balanced part of a whole system and it's running out of control as a renegade, we call it cancer right? or, or an autoimmune disease. So this cancer, this is kind of what the solo self-construction in modern life is. So all I'm trying to do in this book, Interconnected, is point out the what I think is the disease of the solo self, defining the self as right. separate, and then trying to show the dis-ease that comes from that disease of the lethal lie of a separate self can actually be addressed. And it's going to be a win-win situation because I think people are feeling there's something kind of wrong about how modern culture is presenting what you're supposed to do to find meaning in life. And I think that's because the self has been excessively differentiated and it's a lie we're being told about who we are. You know, as you talk about complexity, and I'm thinking, uh, my mind's going all over the place, and I'm thinking of unintended consequences, you know, which we're more and more aware of. We try mm-hmm. to do something to fix something, but <laughs> it seems like there are always these unintended consequences, no matter how we try to be thoughtful and careful. Hopefully, as we become more aware of that phenomenon, maybe we'll get better at, at anticipating some of those un, unintended consequences. But maybe maybe that's an impossible task. And on a and I'm thinking of, at a cosmological level, it seems to me that life, and, and I think this is one of the theories of life. You know that this self-organizing thing gets started, and and. And that's what life is, and it's spread throughout the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. Well, when and, you when you realize we're in that that flow with that, it's a beautiful embracing, you know. And in, in yeah. the back of the book, I have two appendices: uh, one on the wheel of awareness, which gives you that experience directly, and also uh, the other is an integrated movement series. And in all these practices, whether it's like the wheel, where you're doing this very deep inner exploration of the hub of the wheel being pure awareness and the rim being the things you're aware of, or the integrated movements where we talk about nine domains of integration. What my deepest hope for the book is, is that the reader not only learns about indigenous teachings, contemplative teachings, and how science adds to that discussion, looking at integration, but the reader themselves will go on a journey of, of, of transformation. And when I read the audiobook, I read it uh, myself, you know, the audio engineers started entering this like altered state and we had to stop. And I, I, I said, what's going on? He couldn't do the audio engineering. He goes, I don't know what's happening, but I'm listening to these words about the self and I feel myself expanding right now. As you're reading the book. Yeah. yeah. And, and well, expanding, I wouldn't say expanding. dissolving. Okay. Yeah, maybe the solo self opens up because yeah. that's, I guess what I want to make sure is people realize this. And this is what I said to him is that, it isn't a dissolving where you lose something. Yeah. It's an expansion where you're going to actually gain something. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise people freak out and say, oh, this is just a book about, you know, isn't there saying the self doesn't exist and uh, I'm, I'm supposed to get rid of myself? No, this is not about getting rid of anything. This is why I, I went through each of the stages of human yeah. development from conception onward, you know, to say, look, this is about expanding the self not dissolving the self. Um, so it's really about you as a reader growing and gaining more rather than losing something. Right. Well, one of the perspectives I took from one of your earlier books, I think, is that we tend to think that my skin is the boundary of me. 
but in fact, I'm breathing air that's come from other places, you know, from trees and other people's breath. And I'm taking in uh, energy from the sun very far away. That's part of part of my being. Uh, if yeah. if we really extend, and then you know, it can extend to the whole universe and everything that is. Absolutely, yeah. and you know, when when we have that subjective experience, David, that you're talking about, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you take the perspective of the whole, you start seeing life in a different way, which is really exciting. But let's get to the A, the agency of self. So we talked about subjectivity. That's S, perspective. That's the P. The third component of selfness, self-experience, is agency. Imagine if we started acting on behalf of the whole human family and all of living beings. That's what we mean by greater good. And all the studies working toward the greater good show it's a win-win-win situation. Yeah. I mean, you individually in your body will be healthier and happier when you actually have those experiences of gratitude and compassion and awe that you're right. contributing to this greater good. And the people around you will benefit. And the third win is win, 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 is the world, the, the natural world, is waiting for us to wake up from this toxic lie and start realizing that we are the breath of the planet. You know, we are this world. And so, you know, interconnected is a funny word, I know. I mean, it's not a word. Well, maybe it'll become a word now. But <laughs> but the idea of the intra is to feel the subjective experience of the whole, yeah. to take the perspective of the whole and the agency on behalf of the whole. And, you know, if if we, we started living like that, I, I'm really hopeful that there's tremendous, deep and lasting change that together we can create. Well, that raises. There's a question lurking in, in here. I think about um, about ethics and good and evil. And uh, so, what are your thoughts about about good and evil? So, tell me more about that, David, because I'm trying to. I'm trying to th figure out which aspect of the journey of interconnected bring up. Good and evil in uh, in that way. Yeah. We see things happening in the world that that we consider to be evil. You talk about your own personal history and, and your history of your family in the context of speaking about divisions between people and and racism, and so you brought your own story into that, yeah. uh, which which I really appreciated. Um, Thank you. And it's pretty hard not to look at, you know, at things like putting people in gas ovens and et cetera, uh, not as evil. And I the, see. Yeah, right. and, gotcha. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, if you begin with the premise of um, integration as well-being, and if you even take the step of saying, let's use integration to address questions of good and evil as you're presenting them and the questions of ethics, what I found is helpful um, is to stick with the interdisciplinary science of you know interpersonal neurobiology that says well-being comes from integration. So what is integration? It's honoring differences and promoting compassionate linkages. Now, if you look at, you know, all the different genocides around the world and the Holocaust uh, during uh, the, the last uh, millennium, you know, was, uh, was an example of just such a, a thing. But it happens in many, many countries, unfortunately, all over this planet. Humans do this. W when you look at that, you say, well, an excessive differentiation of the in-group from the out-group uh, when you look at the studies of the brain that I talk about in the book, it basically makes the individual's perspective see that person they've designated in the outgroup as subhuman. And this dehumanization process could be called evil, for sure. And if you mean a sadistic that is intentionally inducing pain in others and destruction in others, 
and you want to call that evil, absolutely. But here's the thing. When we say that person's evil, I'm good, they're evil, we are polarizing things. So instead, what I try to do in the book is instead of doing the good and evil thing, was say, look, humans are born into a nervous system that for at least 50 million years has had in-group, out-group distinction processes going on in the nervous system. What we need to do is use our cortex to override this, especially under threat, this propensity we have to put someone in the out-group and then put them in ovens and destroy, destroy them, gas them, murder them, shoot them. You know, and the polarization we see even now is this excessive differentiation. So I think your question is a great one that invites us to say, now, how do we actually take a stance, a moral stance about the proper way to go forward as a humanity without actually increasing polarization, saying we have the right way to do it and your way is not right. So for me, the way to do that is to see every human being has the capacity for what you're calling good and evil. And then what you see with love is the potential for every human being to actually use their cortical override, to override their in-group, out-group distinction, to wake up from the kind of trance of polarization that says, oh, I'm under threat, um, I'm the, I'm team A, we're good. Those people in the other political group, the other religious group, the other racial group, the other species group even, you know, we're the, they're the bad ones, we're the good ones. So this this question you're asking is so great because we need to find a way to say there is health and health promotion that's regenerative and there and there is a very integrative process that we will honor. And if a person's become trapped in a non-integrative process, we're not going to call it evil. We're not going to call them the bad guys. We're going to realize any of us could become trapped in a non-integrative flow. So rather than nounify them as that's the evil one and I'm the good one. No, we say they're in the flow of non-integration. Let me support them with love, with compassion, with understanding, because Every living being on earth will benefit from integration. Nobody benefits from polarization. Nobody, nobody benefits from destruction. And those are all non-integrative states. So what we want to do is be integrationists to not polarize and just say, look, we're all in this together. It's never a good thing to actually polarize and say they're the bad, I'm the good, but actually reach out because everyone will benefit from that. How does that sit with you, though? That sits fine. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think we really have to go to that, uh, to that understanding, to that profound understanding and shift of viewpoint, because the alternative, as you've pointed out, is is chaos and disaster. Uh, so as to not create the, uh, disaster in your life, I know you've got other things you need to move on to. Uh, so, Dan Siegel, Dr. Dan Siegel, I really want to thank you uh, for honoring me uh, with being a guest again on Shrink Wrap Radio. And keep up your good work. Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you. And thank you to everyone listening. Together, we can make this a reality of our interconnected lives. My return guest, Daniel J. Siegel, did not disappoint. This is his fourth appearance on the show, each time to discuss his newest book. His stature as a psychiatrist, author, and visionary deep thinker makes me proud to have him on as a frequent guest. In this most recent interview, we discuss his newest book, Intraconnected, The Integration of Self-Identity and Belonging. This book is vast in its vision. He takes the reader through a lot of layers and complexity, but the argument comes together as a whole. It's easy enough to understand for anyone who reads the whole book. For the purposes of our interview, though, I let him know I wanted to focus on the big ideas, including systems theory, chaos theory, and our ethical responsibilities. His central thesis 
is that our world is seriously out of balance, as evidenced by the pandemic, the climate crisis, and the political-slash-ideological divide. In his view, this all results from a fundamental flaw in our thinking, the separation from nature and one another engendered by the dualist model that we are all separate selves. In Western society, and especially in the U.S., this assumption is deeply embedded in our thinking. This is not just a model or an idea, but rather the culture we are born into. In a sense, it's the air we breathe, the mother's milk of our throne existence. Of course, he notes that Native Americans and other indigenous peoples came up in cultures where there was little sense of separation between themselves and nature. And Buddhism and other wisdom traditions have long held that separation is an illusion. Siegel goes even further to characterize it as a lie. At the same time, he believes that the interpersonal neurobiology that he has co-created with other leading thinkers is an important new innovation, bringing the findings of modern science to the refinement of non-dualist understanding. In the interview, I asked him about ideas of good and evil, which seem to be so basic to human perception. He says that we need to learn to rise above those and see them in the context of the whole picture. However, this does not mean we should passively accept evil deeds and evil persons as inevitable. Rather, we should work for the greater good, which from a systems perspective means exercising gratitude, generosity, awe, and love to create functional wholes in the systems around us. If this sounds impossibly idealistic, you should read the book or at least listen to the interview. The writing in the book is clear and persuasive. Here are a few passages which may help to bring that point home. Quote, The stories of our lives are not only what we say in our mind and to others, but also how we live our lives. The layered stories of our lives become embedded in the actions we carry out in the world. When as a community we share the foundations of these stories, when the values and meanings, interpretations and beliefs are conveyed collectively in communications with one another, culture is created. Close quote. Here's another quote. If our modern cultural narrative collectively molds us to live as disconnected entities, then our experience will arise from those filtering plateaus defined by the categories, concepts, and symbols of separation with our vulnerability to asking who is like me and who is not we are at the risk of dehumanizing those not like me in an effort to cling to our intensified drive for certainty, including the certainty of separateness. With the threat of scarcity, separation is intensified. Sadly, this gives us insight into how humans throughout history can carry out genocide against those deemed not like me those in the dehumanized outgroups across the globe. Close quote. Here's another. Studies of mindfulness meditation that incorporate compassion training to build kind intention, not just in the surface words, but in the deep mental practice of authentically focusing on our connections, may offer preliminary insights into how we can reduce implicit racial bias. Close quote. Finally, he writes, quote, when we see that we live both in and as complex systems and that these systems have a natural cycle shaped by the forces of self-organization, we get a sense of how our inner and our inter-selves shift and change over time. We can then release our system's intelligence to support these natural cycles among the systems we are intraconnected within. 
might we not now be in a reorganization phase, opening in which our intentional actions may help to reduce or eliminate blockages to the system's natural reorganization toward more complex states of integration? Close quote. Once again, the book is Intraconnected, The Integration of Self, Identity, and Belonging by Daniel J. Siegel, M.D. Hi, Dr. Dave. I wanted to thank you for the remarkable podcast series that you've put together. I've been listening for many months now as uh, I run, and uh, I'm like a kid in a candy store. Uh, this is really a remarkable reservoir uh, of information. I do have a check off to you and I encourage everyone to think about how just valuable your service is. Uh, the book review aspect alone is incredible. Uh, it's really allowed me to focus on what I'd really like to read and buy and to glean the essentials of something that I might have interest in but perhaps not adequate time. As I mentioned, I'm a long distance runner and so I listen to you a lot. I find your podcast educational, entertainment, uh, and kind of a secondhand therapy. One of the things I've learned from your podcast is that uh, exercise is as good as meditation, so I guess I get a dose uh, every time I go for a run. Uh, all kidding aside, um, it's just remarkable. Uh, it's a valuable service and a real gift. So uh, I ask everyone to uh, look into their heart, uh, look at their uh, watch and the time that you save them, and uh, look in their wallet uh, and make a contribution so that you can continue doing this good work. Um, thank you so much. As a full-spectrum listener, I really appreciate it. God bless. Thank you, full-spectrum listener Jan Pren. Thanks for taking the step to make yourself part of the Paying Shrinkwrap Radio community and for encouraging others to follow your fine example. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks again to my guest today, Daniel J. Siegel, for discussing your groundbreaking book, Interconnected, The Integration of Self, Identity, and Belonging. Keep up your pioneering work. Our next episode will feature Dr. Tom Murray, an international trainer, educator, and couples and sex therapist. We'll be discussing his 2022 book, Making Nice with Naughty, an intimacy guide for the rule-following, organized, perfectionist, practical, and color-within-the-line types. It should be fun. Until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous. <laughs>